a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medieval literature expert and avid consumer of my husband's cooking. Today, I'm discussing chapters 41 through 50 of Julian of Norwich's incredible contemplative work, often entitled Revelations of Divine Love. This is the fifth episode of an eight-episode series on this 14th century mystical writer and thinker, one of my favorites, who has deeply impacted my spiritual and intellectual life. Julian begins this sequence by thinking through some aspects of prayer. In chapter 41, she writes, I am the ground of thy beseeching. Prayer often baffles me. For one thing, I'm not particularly good at it. I'm inconsistent, usually distracted. Julian begins her section on prayer by explaining that our security in God consists of two elements. Quote, One is rightful prayer. The other is confident trust. Yet, she notes, we are frequently troubled by prayer because, quote, Often we are as barren and dry after our prayers as we were before. Chapter 41. Amen, Julian. In response, the Lord shows words to her. I am the ground of your beseeching. First, it is my will that you should have it, and then I make you to wish it, and then I make you to beseech it. If you beseech it, how could it be that you would not have what you beseech? Chapter 41. If you're like me, perhaps you initially feel a little squeamish about this passage. Maybe it makes you feel like a robot. So you want me to have something, and then you make me want it and pray for it. Where's my personal freedom? Or maybe you were just distracted by the extreme repetition of beseech. It's definitely one of those words where if you look at it a lot or hear it a lot, you start to question if that's really what it is and how it's spelled. Beseech. Beseech. What a weird word. 
Julian means that our desire for peace and safety and love is built into us. And our construction, how we are built, is actually a promise to us. It is impossible in Julian's delightful Middle English, impossible that God should deny us our request for mercy, love, and community with Him and with one another when He has made us to desire it. When we pray for these gifts, we are fulfilling how we are made. Why then the barrenness and the dryness? In Julian's all-encompassing theology, she determines that both our falling and our rising are gifts to us, both of them. We learn things about ourselves and about God in our barrenness that we could not learn during easy, summery, fruitful times. Ultimately, barrenness and dryness are impressions of our world, not the total reality. God's love is steadfast and unceasing, unaffected by our inability to perceive it in that moment. This point leads into her second idea about our security in God, having confident trust in Him. Confident might be a little misleading in this translation. It sounds an awful lot like those people who loudly proclaim their total lack of doubt. In the Middle English, Julian uses secure trust, that's spelled S-E-K-E-R, which is more similar to our modern secure or safe. So safe trust in him. That feels more attainable to me somehow than confident trust. I don't know why. In chapter 46, Julian dwells on the fact that we really do not know ourselves, nor do we know God. We have a contrariousness, as she calls it, that is within us. This is in chapter 49. We project our angers and our fears and insecurities onto one another, and most of all, onto God. She writes, When we know and see, truly and clearly, what our self is, then we shall truly and clearly see and know our Lord God in the fullness of joy. Chapter 46. She then draws the fascinating and perhaps threatening conclusion that there's no wrath in God. And more strikingly, God does not even need to forgive us despite our sin. We need to think seriously about both of these claims. First of all, her claim that there's no wrath in God. Was Julian just ignorant about passages in the Bible on God's wrath? Certainly not. She follows a larger context on reading the Bible, dating back to the time of the church fathers and mothers. In his great work, City of God, St. Augustine of Hippo comes to a similar conclusion— that there cannot be wrath in God. How could these ancient thinkers make this argument? For Augustine, wrath is a passion, or what we would today call an emotion. It blows up. It comes and goes. It's inconsistent. God is the opposite. He is steadfast, eternal, unchanging, peace itself. He, unlike us, 
is not subject to the whims of passion and emotion. When the Bible tells us about God as wrathful, Augustine understands this word choice to be communicating something to us as humans in our limitations caused by our bodies and our language. But it cannot be wrath as we understand it, as we experience wrath. We cannot possibly comprehend how God sees sin and sees us in our sin. Wrath is a potentially useful word for understanding it, but we must always remember, as Augustine calls us, that wrath is a human concept trapped in human language. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas calls this way of thinking about the Bible and speaking about God analogy. Our language is never purely accurate when we speak of God because he's beyond human language. It cannot contain him with its narrow meanings. How could it when it hardly contains ourselves? How many times have you tried to express some part of yourself and bumped up against the limits of language? For Thomas, speaking about God can only ever be like an analogy. We use a particular word to describe him because it gets at something true, but it cannot cover the whole story, like a simile. When we describe someone as a tree of strength, we do not mean that they are literally a tree. Describing them analogically as a tree gets at part of the situation of the truth about that person. It's still true, but it's only a fraction rather than the whole picture. Julian follows in the footsteps of these thinkers, and her objection to wrath in particular makes a lot of sense, especially in her time and context. Let's think again about the overwhelmingly popular medieval penitential system. If you need a refresher on medieval penance and its requirements, you can look in previous podcasts. I've talked about it pretty extensively so far in this Julian series. As I mentioned in the last episode, many priests use confessional handbooks to help their parishioners fully and freely confess their sins. Eventually, such books became available to lay folk as well, to aid them in their confessions. Sometimes, such books, or the priests themselves, encouraged readers to discover their sin and prick them towards confession by considering how wrathful God had become by their sins specifically. Even though we don't participate in the medieval penitential system today, we can probably think about similar things um, and without much effort, actually. How have you offended God with your actions? Some preachers might ask. I know I myself have attended churches that have directed me towards the anger of God as a means of correcting my behavior. I can think of one memorable Christmas Eve service that I attended with my family. Instead of dwelling on the gift of Christ's incarnation and birth, the speaker chose to emphasize how we have neglected God and stoked his anger. And he told a story of how baby Jesus was stolen from the manger and God's anger just hovered over it. Julian believes that dwelling on wrath is not only untruthful to God's character as peace, but not conducive, ultimately, 
to cultivating our trust in him. Note the placement of Julian's meditation on wrath. It comes in the middle of a discussion on prayer. It comes in the middle of a section on knowing ourselves as enclosed, that's her word, enclosed in God's rest and peace. God does not, like an angry parent, drive his misbehaving children away. If we understand him that way, it will bar us through our profound shame from seeking the source of all we need. Instead, Julian understands God as the father of the prodigal son. He's not father of perfect children who haven't done things that rightfully would deserve wrath, but he longs for us. She will return to these themes time and time again in the chapters to come. So then what could she mean when she writes, And between God and our soul, there is neither wrath nor forgiveness in his sight. For our soul is so wholly united to God through his own goodness, that between God and our soul, nothing can interpose. Chapter 46. There's no forgiveness in God's sight? This seems vaguely heretical. Julian is careful to foreground such musings with that it's necessary for us to see and know we are sinners who, quote, commit many evil deeds, which we ought to forsake, and leave many good deeds undone, which we ought to do, so that we deserve pain, blame, and wrath. Chapter 46. Yet there is a difference for her between what we deserve and what we actually receive and even already possess. Let me unpack that last thought for you. Julian considers that there are different levels of truth, lower and higher. The lower truth, still truth, is that we are sinners who deserve blame and wrath. That's settled. That's what we deserve. But what is the reality? The higher truth is that we are ever held in God's unchanging love. God lives outside of time. He does not change in response to events, as people within time's constraints do. So forgiveness itself, responding to sin, is ultimately uncharacteristic to God's eternal, unchanging character as love and peace and friendship themselves. We speak in terms of forgiveness because we are changeable. We respond to events and relationships at the whim of circumstance, temperament, upbringing, and time. We understand God's love through the prism of forgiveness because we live in time and because we ourselves must learn how to forgive in our changeableness and our anger and our contrariousness. To speak of God's forgiveness isn't untrue at all, but there's an even higher truth, which is that God's love is so steadfast and unchanging that nothing has come between us and that love. Nothing. This is the love that we live in, breathe in, and inhabit. Julian's point is if we let wrath and sin, even forgiveness, dominate our comprehension of that fundamentally steady and loving relationship between God and ourselves, we may lose sight of the constant steadiness of God's love. 
This all may be confusing or very new, and that's okay. Julian herself eventually says in exasperation, Ah, how can this be? Perhaps that's what you're saying too. She will continue to carefully consider these themes in the coming weeks. Thank you for joining me today at Old Books with Grace. The text of this podcast is available on oldbookswithgrace.com if you'd like to see it rather than just hear it. Please share with a friend or leave a review if you enjoyed it. Until next time, when we'll be hearing from more Julian 